morning. If you want, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to begin today. We're going to have to go to a number of places within the scriptures because we're really doing a a 30,000-foot look at the topic of mercy. Uh, Now, we've been teaching through the Beatitudes, and we're looking at those who are merciful. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. By the age of 10, I had already lived on two islands in two different countries. And one of those islands was Okinawa, Japan. And it was there on that island of Okinawa that I developed a fondness for martial arts. I wanted to be the next Ninja Turtle. (laughs) Or even more so, I wanted to be the next Karate Kid. You know, growing up in the 80s, one of my favorite movies was The Karate Kid, you know, with Daniel LaRusso and Mr. Miyagi. And in that movie, the antagonist was an angry, immoral man named John Kreese. John Kreese, who taught his students, he gave this quote, We do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. A man confronts you, he is the enemy. An enemy deserves no mercy. Now, doesn't that sound like something a bad guy would say? Yes, and he was the bad guy in that movie. Well, the franchise continued on for several decades. It's actually still around today. They created a remake of the movie in 2010 where the new antagonist says basically the same thing as the old one. He says... We do not stop when our enemy is down. No mercy. No mercy in the studio. No mercy in competition. No mercy in life. Our enemies deserve pain, right? For some of you that grew up in a home like me, sounds like a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, That was the theme. That was the motif, was this anger. You can see how they continued to use it. However, the most Recent development of the franchise deviated from this moral high ground. They have recently uh, created a show, and in that show, based on the original Karate Kid, they have switched the idea of a, hor- of a moral high ground of, of, you know, no mercy is bad, and they've switched it to where now no mercy is one of the co-protagonists. Uh, If you've ever heard of the show, the TV series on Netflix called Cobra Kai, I think they're in their third or fourth season now. I don't watch it anymore. I don't watch these things anymore. Um, But I'm interested in them because I grew up with this kind of stuff, so I read about it. And the antagonist from the original movie, Johnny, uh, appears as another protagonist, even though he encourages students to use the Cobra Kai creed of strike first, strike her hard, no mercy. And you may have never heard of this show, but it's pretty popular, and it's really, this morning's not about this show. Uh, each of their main characters make a million dollars a season, which means the show does pretty good, which means people are watching it. Now, I'm not watching it, and I would encourage you not to watch it, but after I read articles on the show, because I grew up with the original of this, it became very apparent that the producers went this direction that now no mercy is good because of the younger generations. For the younger generations in our culture, uh, there is no absolute of good and bad. You know, back in the day, just a few decades ago, all good guys and superheroes would be like this, and all bad guys would look like that. And now there's a mixture. Now you can't even tell who the good guys 
and the bad guys are. It's not a rare trend. If you pay attention to the movies and media, there's a new definition of hero. It's not what it should be. The traditional good guy versus bad guy construct has faded into the background. And now it's good to be bad, and it's no longer considered best to be merciful. And I I want you to know that, and I want to share that because of what's happening in our culture. It's very relevant, the kind of message that Jesus was giving, because now, uh, if you think of the superheroes of today, one surprising characteristic is that they're wicked. They're evil. TV show, you may not know this unless you watch TV, TV shows now, there's a TV show called Good Girls that's about evil, wicked, bad girls, but it's called Good Girls. There's another TV show called Bad Boys that's pretty popular. There's Game of Thrones that came out. Now, the heroes and the protagonists are actually immoral, and that's becoming a good thing because there's a trend in our culture, and we're feeding into it. We're, we're feeding into it, we're receiving it, and we're feeding into it. And the youngest generations are not growing up in a world where the superhero is not a good, moral, merciful character. There's a new Batman that's coming out where Batman is bad. I mean, Batman used to be good. He used to not take life. Now, Batman kills. And I say now, it's really been that way for a few years. But I, I'm sharing this because you need to know where, the, where our neighbors and our community is going, where our children and our grandchildren, what they're being fed. You know, years ago, I, I remember reading the passage on the end times, I thought. I thought it was about the end times, just like way, like the ultimate last day. And it said, soon people will no longer listen to sound doctrine, but they will grab, they will collect for themselves teachers who will just tell them what they want to hear. They will, they will scratch their itching ears, their tingling ears, and they will give them what they hear. And I used to think, oh man, I got to watch out for bad preachers. I got to pay attention. There's bad preachers out there and they're going to be preaching the health, wealth, prosperity stuff and it's just going to trick the church and I got to be watching out for them. And then I realized in reading and studying the scripture, it never says preachers. It wasn't talking about preachers that the people of our day will select preachers to tell them what they want to hear, just teachers, which means they're selecting Netflix and movies and TV shows that you can get on every device you have. You can now stream sermons 24-7 and it's not in a church. I used to think it was just about bad preachers, and I no longer believe that anymore. The people will select for themselves what they want to hear, and we're funneling it in through our devices. And it's relevant because now everything coming at the younger generations is, hey, good guys aren't those weak, nice, soft guys. The good guys are, they're moral. They drink. They do drugs. They cuss. They murder if they have to. They're kind of rough around the edges. That, those are the new superheroes for our children. Now, I don't want our children to think that, but I can't take them out of this world. And so those of you that think, oh, I'll never watch that stuff, maybe you're older and you're like, this is crazy, our world is going crazy. You're, tr- you're right, our world is going crazy. Do you pray for the next generations that God would defend them and protect them from this message, these sermons that are constantly being taught to them? And will you stop your kids from listening to this stuff and watching this stuff? Praying and being watchful. And it's not a surprise why they're going to the bad guy, good guy motif. It's clear. It's no longer good to be merciful because 
To be merciful, you have to put others before yourself. And that's not the message of the newest culture wave. To, to be merciful, you have to believe and trust and live like it's not all about me. That is the complete opposite message of mainstream. It is all about you. And it's only about you, and you need to protect you and, and serve you and think about you. So this message of being merciful is very important for us as a church and for our community. And we need to learn what it means to be merciful. What does it mean to be merciful? Well, that's the kind of lifestyle Jesus preached when he gave the fifth beatitude, which is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The ones who are enviable, the ones that we should look at and say, man, that's a blessed life, are those that are merciful. Not like the new superheroes of today, but the hero of Jesus. Blessed are those who are merciful. If you've been here the last few weeks, you've, you've been with us during our study of the Beatitudes, and we gave three characteristics of the Beatitudes. They're paradoxical, which meaning they seem to contradict. You have to take, you can't take them at face value. You have to dig deep in what it means. Like, blessed are those who mourn. It's like, happy are those who are sad. That doesn't make any sense. So there's a seeming contradiction. They're also proverbial. They're wise sayings. They're pithy sayings. Each one you can take and try to apply and look at how it affects your life. And they're also progressive. And this is the most helpful with the Beatitudes. There's a progression there that each one feeds into the next. And so we, we thought of the fruit tree. And we thought of the root system of a fruit tree. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are mourned. Blessed are those who are meek. These three beatitudes, these blessings, uh, characterize a person who's humble, who's humble before God. That's the root system. If you're going to grow and you're going to live a blessed life, if you, if you understand the roadmap that Jesus is giving here, if you want to have a blessed life, you begin with humility. So it begins with humility. And then out of that humility, you develop a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You actually want righteousness. You look forward to it. And then that's the trunk and the branch system. That's the fourth beatitude. Then the next three beatitudes are the fruit on the tree. And the first of a fruitful life, if you have someone who's blessed, who's humble before God, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, they will become merciful. And so that's where we are. We're in the merciful section. You are truly blessed if you are merciful because if you are, God will be merciful to you. You will receive mercy. Now, clearly Jesus is not saying, listen, if you are merciful, your coworkers will be merciful to you. Your supervisor will be merciful to you. Your banker will be merciful to you. Your children will be merciful to you. That's clearly not true. You know, those, that's not what he's saying. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And he's really speaking about from God. God will for sure, as a promise, give them mercy and show them mercy. And God is the one that we need mercy from the most. After God delivered King David from all his enemies and Saul, he, David wrote a psalm addressed specifically to God. And in it he says, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With those who are merciful, you show yourself merciful. Now, who knows the mercy of God like King David, who sinned and had a chance of ruining his life, and yet God was merciful to him? We read about him earlier. We read his psalm. He received God's mercy because he was merciful, and David wrote about that. But again, what is mercy? What does it truly mean to be 
merciful. How do you know you're being merciful? Well, the term mercy is a complex word in the Bible. It's not an easy word to define. Just in our English Bibles, you find mercy translated in at least seven different ways. You have compassion, pity, forgiveness, kindness, godly, faithful, patient. In our English Bibles, they translate, the, think of the word mercy like the word love. You know how like the word love has many facets to it, kind of like a diamond. There's different ways you look at it. You know, love is uh, patient and kind and long-suffering. It's not envious. It doesn't boast. Like all these truths about love. One word, but it's got a lot packed into it. I found out through study that mercy is like love. When you study the word mercy in the Bible, you find it's not just talking about forgiveness, which is what I thought it always talked about. I thought mercy was always about forgiveness, about not giving someone what they deserve. But that's not true. And so I want to take you through some of the passages that use the word mercy. And I just want to look at three habits that you can develop to grow in mercy, to grow to be merciful. It's not all of them. There's more passages. The Old Testament's really complex when it comes to the word mercy because it translates in your English Bibles. It translates mercy in seven different ways. And so it's hard to study it with an English Bible, but if you get that word, what the word mercy is, you can find it in different contexts because it has different sides to it, the word mercy. So we're going to look at different ones. We're going to talk about three habits you can develop to grow in mercy. And the first one is found in the popular story of the Good Samaritan. And so the first rule with growing in mercy is give care to the downcast. Give care to the downcast. That's how you grow in mercy. Jesus tells the story of the Samaritan who cared for the guy who was almost dead on the side of the road. What did he do? He went over to the guy on the other side. He showed him care. He bandaged up his wounds. He used his own oil and his own wine. These cost money. This is almost like just using your, it is like using your resources. He used his resources. He brought them to an inn. Not only did he bring them to the inn, but he talked with the innkeeper. He took, he was like his caretaker. He talked to the innkeeper. He even gave extra money to the innkeeper and said, listen, if this guy needs any more help, you help him and I'll come back and I'll pay you more if there's more to be paid. That good Samaritan was a wonderful reflection of what Jesus says that it means to love your neighbor as yourself. But what did Jesus ask at the end of the parable? When he got done with the parable, what did he ask the religious lawyer? He asked, Luke chapter 10, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So in the mind of a Bible teacher 2,000 years ago, in the context of Jesus, those, that audience, when they hear the story of the Good Samaritan, this is how they're translating it. That guy showed mercy. Now, let me ask you a question. Did he have to forgive the beaten guy on the side of the road? Did he have to forgive him for anything? No. So is mercy only talking about forgiveness? No. Jesus wants us to show mercy, and it's not just about forgiveness. Being merciful means you show compassionate care to the people around you. I'll give you another example. When the two blind men cried out to Jesus, uh, when they cried out to Jesus, what did they ask for? Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 30. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, 
And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, verse 22, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I just want you to stop and think. They're crying out for mercy, and Jesus is asking them to define what they're wanting. What do you mean by mercy? What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And, in, and Jesus, in pity, that word for pity, same word for mercy, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Being merciful, it begins with an ache of the heart, and leads to the action of a hand. The ache of the heart to the action of the hands. Where you don't just feel pity, you feel like, man, this person is downcast, he needs help, but you actually do something about it. Merciful means you give care to the downcast. You don't just feel bad for them, you actually do something about it. Being merciful means that you make the troubles of others your own. You don't only focus on your own well-being, but you think of the well-being of others. You're not just all about you. And that's the bottom line. That's the bedrock of mercy. To be merciful, you have to get to a point where you believe it's not all about me. It's not just about me. I need to look out beyond me. I need to look at those who need care, the the downcast, and I need to look at them. I knew a family uh, back when we lived in Tennessee, there was a family that would drive to Memphis, Tennessee. Often Memphis is a bigger city than Newton. And so there was a lot of people there, and uh, they would drive, and they would see homeless people. Right off the highway, the interstate, and the freeway, there'd be homeless people at the bottom, and they'd have signs, you know, help me, and they'd give money, give food kind of thing. And, and apparently, their kids asked them, hey, let's give them money. And the parents were like, uh, it's best not to give money to people you don't know, especially in this situation. A lot of times, it just feeds their addictions. You become a codependent. You're enabling. Um, some people can use money, Statistically, most people do not. If you talk to anybody in addiction recovery, homeless ministry, do not give people you don't know money. It is one of the worst things you could do. You have to find out about them first. And so they were telling him this, and the kids, of course, asked the next question, uh, well, then what will we do for them? Well, of course, parents, you can't be a low-down, dirty dog. You've got to do something. You want to show compassion and mercy. And so they developed this habit to where they filled garbage bags with toothpaste and toothbrushes and soap and socks and different things and they also put a bible and a tract in it and they said it they prayed over it as a family they put it in their vehicle and they said if we ever come across people like this we're going to hand them this and if we get an opportunity we're going to pray for them we're going to say hey god loves you is there anything we could pray for you here's something to help you that way you're doing something other than just ignoring them and moving on that's one way to grow in mercy and you can be creative You can think of different ways that's helpful in being a good steward of what God's given you to care for those who are downcast. So if you want to grow in mercy, give care to the downcast. But that's not the only side to mercy. That's not the only side to mercy. Mercy isn't just about having a compassionate heart and doing something about it. Look at Jude verse 21. Jude is only one chapter, so we don't say chapter. It's just Jude verse 21. Jude writes, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy. He uses this word three times, by the way, which is the most than any other New Testament writer uh, in this, in just three verses. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have 
mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear. Show mercy with fear, that's interesting. Hating even the garment by the flesh. So Judas telling them, listen, wait for the mercy of the Lord. What's he talking about? Jesus is coming back, and is he going to judge you and kill you? Not if you're a Christian. Not if you're a Christian. You're going to receive mercy. Wait for the mercy of the Lord. You know what Jude's trying to encourage them with? Hope. They need hope. It's hard. The lives that they're in a persecuted environment. They're in a, they're in a tough spot. And Jude's saying, listen, wait for the mercy of God. Jesus is coming back. Wait for the mercy that you're going to receive when he comes back to give you hope. Mercy gives people hope. That's what he's saying. When you know that mercy's coming, it gives you, it's like a light at the end of the tunnel. It's like a drink of water in the desert. It's like a breath of fresh air when you haven't, when you ha- when you've been dying for air. Mercy brings hope. And then he writes, have mercy on those who doubt. So there's going to be those that doubt that, that need your mercy. And so the idea here is give hope to the doubter. Meaning God wants you to share the hope that you receive from him. He wants you to share that hope with others. So part of being merciful, to show mercy to those who doubt, to show mercy is to bring hope to those who are doubting. There's going to be people that are, that are doubting. You know, church is one place where it's, it's really hard to be honest about your doubts, isn't it? You can't even say amen to that because you don't want anybody to hear you. <laughs> Seriously, it's not just that you're a Mennonite background. It's hard to admit. It's hard to admit. It's difficult to exp- express your doubts, especially when you have people sitting around you that they don't doubt. They don't doubt, and their lives are perfect, and they're doing great, and they're smiling and worshiping and singing. That's not how you may feel. But how, how do you express your doubt? Have you ever been in a Sunday school class, and everybody's throwing out answers, and you're sitting there going, I don't know if I believe this. Are you going to say that? If you have a personality like me, you might, but most of you, 99% of you won't. You won't say anything. You'll be like, oh, yes, everything you're saying, I totally agree with. Then you're going to go home and feeling bad because you don't feel that way. Then you feel guilt because of your doubt. People have doubts, and this needs to be a place where people can share their doubts and receive mercy. You need to be able to receive mercy. Not everybody is in the same place at the same time. So I'm going to give you three words to describe what does it mean to show mercy, to give hope to the doubters. What does it mean to show mercy to those who doubt? Number one, be patient. Be patient. People are not always where you want them to be. They're not always where you are. There's going to be people around you that are behind you, and they're going to have doubts, and you're going to be thinking, you know, you're going to scratch your head and be like, no, of course that's not true. You know, the the more you know, actually, the more you grow, the harder it is to be patient because it's easy for you to forget where you were, where you began, where you started. So if you want to show mercy, you have to be patient, just like with kids. They're not where you are in their development. And you can't just get up. You have to be patient. They're in a different spot. They're processing. They're growing. They're learning. Don't expect them to be like you because they're not, they haven't had the decades of experience that you've had. You have to be patient. That's true in this Christian life, those who are new to the faith. Be patient. That's what it means to be merciful to those who doubt. So be patient. Number two, be present. Be there. Listen. 
Those who are doubting, if they receive mercy from you, you know what they really receive? A listening, kind ear. Someone who just says, hey, tell me. And you listen. You listen faithfully. You listen without judgment and critique. Show mercy to those who doubt. Be patient with them and be present. Listen to them carefully. And third, be persistent. This is one, it's so easy to give up. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with a doubter more than once. We all have. But it's almost like, you know what, I just give up. There's nothing for me to do. I can't convince them. I can't help them. My neighbors are lost forever. You know, you just want to give up. Don't give up. I'll just give you a few examples. When did God give up on you? If you can tell me when God gave up on you, then you at least have some place to say, I can give up on others. But you can't. Because God has never given up on you. Be be patient, be present, be persistent. Remember that their lives are on the line. I think that's why Jude says, don't just show mercy to those who doubt. Snatch others out of the fire, realizing that some may be non-believers. You be persistent. Show them mercy and don't give up on them. Sometimes mercy is just you not quitting. You persevering is mercy. So show mercy. Be persistent. If you want to grow in mercy, spend time with those who are doubting or those who are in sin. That's why he says even hating the garment that's defiled by sin. Realizing that, you know, if you put yourselves in situations where you have to be patient and merciful with those who are doubting and those who are caught in sin and those who are lost you're going to find yourself right where the battlefield is. Now, if there's a soldier inside the castle, inside the weapons room, he doesn't have to be that careful. I mean, nothing's coming right away. He'll hear the alarm. The watchman will sound the trumpet. He's not that concerned about someone attacking him there. But if you're in the middle of the battlefield, shouldn't you be watchful, realizing all the time, if I'm merciful with these people, I might eventually be tempted to go the route of, you know, because they're not that bad and I love them, their sin is not that bad. Don't do that. Hate even the garment that's defiled. That, that's a picture. That's a living picture. It's like a parable Jesus gave. They would understand. Don't even get near the clothes that have been in that brothel, that place. Don't even hate the clothes that are involved with that. Don't even have that kind of metaphorical garment Hate sin. Realize sin is evil. Sin sends you to hell. Sin is punishable by wrath. Remember that when you're being merciful. Show mercy with fear. Have a sense of respect and discernment. Be careful. Because if you're around those who doubt and those who are caught in sin and those who are lost, you're going to be right in the middle of the battlefield and you too could be taken under. So show mercy with fear. Recognizing that, that sin is really what it is. So give care to the downcast and give hope to the doubter. And third, which is probably the most common connection to mercy, is give forgiveness to the doubter. Give forgiveness to the doubter. Give care to the downcast, give hope to the doubter, sorry, and give forgiveness to the debtor. Doubter and debtor are so close, by the way. And give mercy to the preacher who, I am what I am, okay? I try. Give forgiveness to the debtor. 
The word mercy is used at least 78 times in the New Testament. Two times it's used negatively, meaning merciless or unmerciful. 76 times it's just merciful. It's just used, or sorry, it's just mercy. Now, sometimes mercy is translated different ways depending on your English translation, but that word is used 76 times. But do you know how many times the word that's used in Matthew chapter 5 or 7 is used? Twice. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's one time. And the second time is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Speaking of Jesus and his, how he was merciful with us. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to put on our flesh. He had to put on our weaknesses. He had to become a baby. He had to grow up. He had to become hungry and tired. He had to suffer and die because God cannot die and you need a sacrifice. And God doesn't want the sacrifice to be you. So he put on flesh so he could die and he could suffer. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus went, we don't have words for, like we use words like the extra mile. There's no extra mile term that defines it. Jesus went to the ultimate end to be merciful with us, just to show us mercy. And we didn't make him that way, and we didn't coerce him or persuade him. We didn't even ask him. Nobody except God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit designed Jesus to die and to be crushed so that we could be saved. We would have all perished. We would have all died in our sins if it were not for the mercy of our Lord. He did that so that he could be merciful and faithful. It says to make propitiation for the sins of people. I love that word because it took me a long time to finally remember what it means. It just means he became a substitute for you in receiving God's wrath. He appeased God's wrath. God was angry against sin and righteously, justly so. And even though we should have paid for our own sins because you should reap what you sow, you should pay for what you do, you should take responsibility for you, Jesus took responsibility for you. Think about that. Jesus made your troubles his own. That's what it means to be merciful. It's not just about me. I'm going to make your troubles my own. I'm going to be merciful to you. Mercy is bent toward forgiveness. It's actually the first word that God used to describe himself to Moses. In Exodus chapter 34, one of the most famous Jewish scripture passages in the Old Testament Exodus 34, 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Just to give you a background, Moses had been walking with God for a long time. And after the plagues and after the whole show, Moses finally went to God and said, Listen, I know your works. I've seen what you've done. You've, you have control over the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the plant, the dry land, the sea, the skies. You have power over it all. I've seen your works. But I have one request. Would you show me your ways? And the Hebrew word for your ways that he talks about is, can you show me what you are like personally? I've seen what you've done. I've read about it. I've seen it. I've witnessed this. But I want to know you personally. And so God says, I'll show you. I got to show you in a particular way. I got to protect you a little bit, but I'll show you. And this is the only place in the entire Bible, especially the Old Testament, 
the entire Old Testament where the word Yahweh is used two times together in a row. Only place. You will never see this again. It's only in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Yahweh, Yahweh. It was so significant that the Hebrew people thought, we got to memorize Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It's exactly 15 Hebrew words when it talks about God's goodness and 15 Hebrew words when it talks about God's wrath on sin. It is such a significant, complex, poetical section, and it's the only one like it in all the Bible. And the Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful. The first adjective that God uses to describe himself in such a unique passage of Scripture is God is merciful. That's what he wanted us to know. That's what he wanted Moses to understand. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is so merciful. First word he uses. Moses repeats this, not the Yahweh part, but he repeats this idea, this concept in Deuteronomy 4.31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. He gave him a three-point sermon in one sentence. I know you're all dying for that one day. He gave him three, three points. He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget his promises to you. How merciful is that? He will never leave you. And he won't punish you. And he won't forget what he told you. There is no greater mercy. The Lord God is so merciful. We get the same treatment from God just as they got. Paul reminds us of this when he wrote to the Ephesians in that famous passage, Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about our salvation. We were dead in our trespasses. How amazing this was. And he says, God, who is rich in? Rich in mercy. Wealthy. He has enough mercy to go around, and he'll never not have enough. He's beyond rich, rich in mercy. Mercy expresses itself in God's forgiveness. That's, that's, our, that's one of our facets of mercy. It is forgiveness. It's not just forgiveness, but oh, isn't it forgiveness too? Mercy expresses itself in God's forgiveness. It's almost comical, but more sad that Jonah knew this, and this made him mad. Has, have you ever known anybody that was mad about mercy? Jonah said, and he prayed to the Lord in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. Oh, I knew you were merciful. Could you just imagine that man being bitter and upset about mercy? Oh, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and uh, relenting from disaster. Jonah would fit right into our day, wouldn't he? He'd fit right into our culture. I knew you were like this. That's why he was man. God is merciful. And because he's been merciful to us, we ought to be merciful to others. We ought to forgive the debtor. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, this is the ESV translation. It doesn't use the same Greek word, just FYI. He says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The idea is compassionate. The idea is forgiving. Be, be forgiving with others because your God is this way. Your Father is this way. 
and he used a memorable parable of an unforgiving servant. Mercy is tied to forgiveness. The unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18, I'll just read the last. Jesus is teaching this parable, and he's talking about the servant that got forgiven like a bajillion dollars, and then he wouldn't forgive someone else for like $50, and then the king gets upset and throws him in jail. This is what he says, verse 33 in Matthew 18. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The idea that Jesus was trying to teach is, how merciful has God been toward you? Why would you not be merciful towards someone else? Shouldn't you be, shouldn't you show mercy? I share my testimony every now and then. I know some of you have heard it, and I'm okay with that. I, I do want to tell you. I know not everybody's heard this. When I was a boy, when I was really young, before grade school, I was abused um, in some significant way, and it happened to be a friend of my mom that abused me, and I told. I said something to my dad. My dad got upset. The cops got involved. Uh, it was a real serious thing. And we, of course, stopped being friends. My mom stopped being friends with those people. And when I was around eight or nine, my mom was going through one of the worst periods of her life. And uh, she ended up yelling at me and cussing at me and telling me I was the reason that she didn't have any friends. It was my fault that her friend abused me. And it, I, I kind of swallowed that up and buried that a little bit, didn't know what to do with that. When I got close to teenage years, when, you know, all your, you're just thinking so straight, uh, I became angry. I became angry. It started coming back up, and I was mad because I felt like my mom ruined our family and because she got into drugs and had affairs and got pregnant from someone other than my dad. My mom and dad couldn't make it together, and I became angry, and I did the one thing that you're not allowed to do in Hispanic culture. My mom's 100% Hispanic. Her whole family's Hispanic. I did the one thing that you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to stay mad at mama. You're just not allowed to do that in Hispanic culture. Mom's the Mother Mary. That's the big, that's the leader of the whole thing, and so I went against that trend because I was upset and lost and ignorant of the truth and didn't understand anything, and I, was, I, I hated my mother. I genuinely hated my mom, and it ate me up inside. Hateness is like a bitterness, unforgiveness, and when I was 16, I became a Christian. I gave my life to Christ, had nothing to do with my mom, gave my life to Christ, knew I was a sinner, but it took two years, two years for me to finally forgive my mom. And when I was around the age of 18, I go off to college, I come back for Christmas, and that year, college had been one of the best things in my life. I, I was finally being discipled, I had some older men that I looked up to, I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't, I didn't know all the stories, I didn't read the Bible, I didn't have good influence, and I wasn't very smart, I wasn't productive, I wasn't athletic, I had nothing going for me, but God saved me anyway. And so I'm 18, I'm learning about the Bible, I can't get enough of God, it's like eating it. I, I couldn't stop reading, I couldn't stop getting the Bible. I go home, and I'd read the passage, forgive others as I've forgiven you. And I had started my Bible college reading about theology, if you've ever heard that word, doctrine, you know, those boring words that other people don't like, I love. And I read, I understood the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of my sin, the truth Doctor just means teaching. I understood God's right teaching about sin. And my sin was so heinous. I did not love God. I did not pursue Him. I wasn't a good person. And God forgave me and sought me out. And I remember feeling overwhelmed by that and thinking, God, you have forgiven me like that. How should I forgive others? I went home. I talked to my mom. We had a big, long, late-night conversation, a bunch of tears. 
And I began it with, I forgive you. I really forgive you. And I remember telling my mom, Mom, you have never done to me not even a fraction of what I've done to my Lord Jesus Christ. My sin put him on the cross. I was his enemy. My sin against God, according to good sound teaching, is worse than any sin that anybody has ever committed against me. Not my abusers, not you, not the people around you, anybody that's ever hurt me has not hurt me a fraction as much as I have gone against the Lord. And he forgave me. And would you know it? A doctrine on sin freed me up in life. I've had so many counsel sessions where people are like, oh, I don't need doctrine. I just need practical, tell me relevant practical stuff that I'm going to deal with. Listen, if you don't understand the doctrine of your sin, you'll never be free, ever. You might feel good, but you don't really feel good. If, if you feel like I can't forgive someone else, it's because of a men- it starts in the mind. You don't know that you have done worse to Jesus than they've done to you. But once you embrace the truth about your own sin, that you desperately need mercy, you can look at those people and say, that would have been me. My mom grew up in the 60s. Her father abused her. She grew up in a non-Christian home. She's gone through so many things. You know what God has saved me from? Me. I would have made all those mistakes. I would have committed worse sins. But God saved me, a wretch, unclean. And God saved me. He had mercy on me. If you do not receive God's mercy, you'll never give it. And you can't receive it until you know how much you need it. We were sinners, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, had favor on us. And out of his grace and out of his love, he died for us so that we would be something different. That's the kind of mercy that God has for us. And if you receive that mercy, you will give care to the downcast. You will give hope to the doubter, and you will give forgiveness to the debtor. Let's pray. I think the worship band is going to come up. We're going to have one more song. And I I pray that during this song, if you realize that you have not given mercy and there's something in your life that's wrong, take this time to pray or take this time to sing. Let the truth in this song ring true in your heart as they lead us in the song of prayer. I'm going to pray one last time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy toward us. Thank you for how much you've forgiven me. Thank you for the way that you've forgiven my mom and you've changed her life and she's different than she was 30 years ago. I pray for our church family. We are all your your daughters and your sons. We're children, we're like sheep. We need your guidance. Help us to be a merciful people and help us to show this culture what it the good that it means to be merciful. I pray against the enemy and demons and the principalities and the authorities that are working through media and Hollywood and entertainment and streaming and they're preaching all the time. Would you help us to lift our voices, to help us to lend a hand? Would you help us to give care and give hope and give forgiveness so that people would see the, the artificial poison 
that's being fed to them. I pray that you would use us as a light, a beacon in this community. We love you because you first loved us. There is no one who is more rich in mercy than you. Teach us to be rich in mercy. Transform our hearts. We confess our sins. We, are, we do miss the mark. We do fall short of your glory. Keep transforming us into the image of your son. Help us to reflect the image of you and help us to be merciful. I know that one day, all those who put their faith in you will receive a mercy that is beyond words. Help us to build that kingdom now. Help us to save souls and, and be with us this week during Summer Quest. Let this be a time of joy and singing and truth that expresses what it really means to know you and to be loved by you. We love you because you first loved us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.